From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. So Ohio is now the 36th state to eliminate the duty to retreat, which was a horrible, terrible, no good, very bad law. It's now gone, and Buckeye Firearms Association wins a decisive victory. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by the man himself, Rob Sexton, BFA's Legislative Affairs Director. Rob, how do you feel about this? I mean, it's pretty exciting. It is really exciting, Dean. Uh, In fact, you know, when you go back to the beginning of December, there was a really good chance that we were going to get shut out all the way around. But fortunately, a lot of the groundwork that was laid throughout the session, we were able to get some uh, momentum going and ultimately pull out the victory. So we're really excited. And we've been working on this throughout the session. Ohio has two-year legislative sessions. And things really got exciting last year. This didn't happen the way most bills happen. Generally, you know, if a bill moves, and it moves pretty well, it's introduced, it goes through both chambers, it gets signed. This one had some twists and turns. If we go back to the very beginning, why don't you just walk us through how duty to retreat got repealed in Ohio? Because this this is kind of like a graduate course in lobbying, <laughs> right? So how did we do this? Well, I think, you know, the... The history of this bill is going to be a, a lesson in, you know, making sure you stay in the game to the last minute. Uh, I mean, I'll confess, there I was among those who thought that the legislature was going to let this bill die without dealing with it. But instead of, you know, chucking it overboard and, and start, you know, name-calling those who let the bill die, you know, we hung in there in the game till the last possible moment and were able to actually make something constructive happen. And so... You know, as you say, it's a two-year session. Unfortunately, a lot of our elected officials have developed a habit of taking the more controversial stuff and and moving it all to the very end of session. So what is typically called the lame duck session. So it's a tough time to be able to do good legislating, but that's where this particular bill was accomplished. And, and, you know, if you weren't there when the decisions were made, then, uh, then you were shut out, and, and we were there in force until the last bell rung, and that's basically how it got done. And it was signed on the very last day, right? I mean, this went right down to the wire. We were on day 10 of that 10-day window when a bill can be signed. And, and there's no, in Ohio, unlike at the federal level, we don't have a pocket veto. So it would have gone into effect if, if the governor hadn't signed it, but he did sign it. So that, that was a really good thing. But but take us right back. How did we start out when uh, we were starting to deal with duty to retreat? So, you know, uh, the the repeal of duty to retreat legislation had already been introduced, a, a previous bill, House Bill 381, but the legislature hadn't done much of anything with that bill other than give it some hearings, honestly, give it some lip service. As session began to wind down, we began to have the conversation, are we going to be able to get one of our major priorities done? we received information that indicated that they just weren't going to deal with that bill. And so at that point, we opened up conversations with legislative leaders, in this case, starting with the Senate, with our our ally, Senator Terry Johnson, and of course, the Senate President Larry Opoff, 
And we, we began to discuss, well, what if we went after a clean bill, you know, a bill that was only duty to retreat, and that's all it would do. Would you guys be willing to take a look at it? You know, they were. And so we got a call a few weeks later. It was a call. In fact, it was Larry Upoff and, and Senator Johnson on the phone with uh, us at the same time. They sent us over a draft. You know, Buckeye Firearms is blessed to have two really crackerjack uh, attorneys when it comes to legal analysis, and both of those guys got a good look at it. Uh, and that resulted in Terry Johnson's introduction of Senate Bill 383, which was a completely clean repeal of duty to retreat. That bill was then followed up on over in the House, where uh, State Representative Kyle Kaler introduced what we would call a companion or an identical bill. House Bill 796. So at that point, I think we're talking about, you know, early uh, to mid-November or maybe late October, we had clean duty-to-retreat bills introduced in both houses, and they began to have hearings on them. But of course, as we learned from the previous bill, hearings don't necessarily translate into action. So what came next is really how the bill got done. Now, what was the point of having the two different bills, you know, one in the House and and one in the Senate? Was that just a matter of making it more efficient? Yeah, I think in some cases, having bills in both chambers gives you some flexibility. You know, if you run into a roadblock in the House, for instance, you've still got a live bill over in the Senate. It also enables you to to move it in on parallel tracks in both chambers, right? So at the point in which your Senate bill goes to the House, they've already had some hearings on the identical bill with the House bill. So you're not really starting from scratch on the subject. So in the interest of speed, companion bills can be very helpful. So uh, where did it go from there? Because I know we were we were about where when, when we introduced those two bills, because the, the session was running out, the year was coming to an end. About, you know, wh- where were we when those two bills were introduced? Was well, this just like October, November? Yeah, this would have been uh, late October. And, and I think, you know, we, we knew there wasn't going to be any more House session or Senate mm-hmm. session prior to the election. So we knew... Whatever happened, it would take place during lame duck session after the election. So those two bills, that was step one, getting the language that we wanted and starting the process of having them heard. Step two, of course, is when we pivoted to, okay, what is where is this bill actually going to pass? Because as, as everyone knows, it's you know, the duty to retreat bill is not House Bill 796, it's not Senate Bill 383, and in fact became part of Senate Bill 175. So, you know, step one was getting the right language. Step two was finding the right bill for it to go in. And, of course, that's a whole nother story. So so this was really just a tactical move, right? We, You know, you started out with the bill. It wasn't moving. Introduced two clean bills to sort of start to speed things up. And then we realized the time is really running out. Plus, they're dealing with elections, right? I mean, they're just totally distracted and weren't there how many other bills? Like maybe 40 other bills they were trying to pass, 50, something like that. I mean, everything was a train wreck as usual at the end, plus the election, plus COVID, because it was uh, things were really difficult to, to do at the Statehouse at that time. Yeah. So then this was just a tactical move. We needed a vehicle, something that was already on the move. So there's a train going down the track. Right. So we needed to take that language throw it onto that train, and and get it to the station. Yes, and I, and I would say that's, you know, the first few weeks, first couple of weeks of November, that was what the discussion was about. You know, can we find the right bill to put this in? 
one that we know has a good chance to pass not only you know one chamber but the other. And I think when the timeline is that tight, you're not looking for a bill that has to go through both chambers. You're looking for a bill that's already gone through half the process. So Senate Bill 175 had already passed the Senate. It was in the hands of the House. So the reason why it became an attractive vehicle for the duty to retreat repeal is because if we dropped the duty to retreat language in Senate Bill 175, it would not have to have hearings over in the Senate. It's already halfway through the process. So then we're coming up on the last few days. The language gets into this bill. It's moving. So how did that get across the finish line? Yeah, so, you know, the ultimately... As we mentioned, Senate Bill 175 was identified as the vehicle. There became a lot of discussion about when they would take it up, how long ago they'd take it up. It actually was a floor amendment. And you don't see very many floor amendments in the House. You know, there's 99 members of the House. It's a bit of a free-for-all if you start amending bills. So most amendments are done in committee. But in this case, the Speaker committed to doing the uh, amendment on the House floor. And I think that was a great move on his part to solidify how gun owners see him. You know, Bob Cup is a brand new speaker. Uh, he's a former Supreme Court justice, and I think there were questions about whether he would be committed to our agenda once he had a chance to impact it. And I think he immediately demonstrated that he did have some regard for our agenda because he signed off on the amendment being done on the House floor. So once it was done on the House floor, immediately the House took up the full bill. The votes were held literally five minutes apart. The House voted in favor of both the amendment and the full bill, and that sent the whole debate right back over to the Senate. Now, are there risks doing it that way rather than having the amendments in the committee? I mean, obviously, this was a time thing, right? Ordinarily, you wouldn't do it that way. But, you know, you have like one vote after another, and it creates a lot of votes on the floor then. Yeah, and I, and I think the only risk is just whether or not you can manage the process of getting the amendments done it actually cuts down on some of the nonsense that takes place. You know, when you're in a committee, you're liable to face any number of different possible amendments that can derail a bill. You know, you've heard the term a poison pill. You know, somebody come up with an amendment that sounds good on the surface, but ultimately it kills your bill because it introduces a, a, another controversial topic that legislators aren't prepared to deal with. So you eliminate that possibility with a floor amendment when the Speaker of the House is behind getting it done. And so in this case, you know, I think the, the reward far outweighed the risk in having it done on the floor. And, you know, that dealt with it. And at that point, then it was just a matter of getting the Senate to come back and do their part. Because, you know, the Ohio Constitution says that if, if one chamber changes a bill, then the other chamber has to concur uh, on those changes. Now, when we say concur, that just means they have to vote yes or no on the changes. They, there's no more hearings. There's no more process. Uh, Senate Bill 175 was sent back to the Senate. The Senate then had a choice to make whether to say yes to the changes or no, and they accepted the changes that were made in the House, and that's what cleared the way for it to go to Governor Mike DeWine's desk. Now, there was there was an awful lot in the news about the governor possibly vetoing this bill. I mean, I, every article that we read was indicating, you know, this might get vetoed. The clock starts you know, there's a 10-day window when he can veto the bill, sign the bill, or just ignore it. So how did we overcome that? Because the fight wasn't over just because it passed the House and the Senate and it got 
you know, enough votes. What happened then? Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting because the governor's position came up a lot. If I, I still want to put one more point on the legislative side of things. It came up a lot when we were asking senators and state reps to take up the vote. Well, what's the governor going to do? You know, in our position and the position of the National Rifle Association, which worked in tandem with us on this thing, our position was let's get it on the governor's desk and make him make that decision. You know, let's not let him have undue influence over what you do. You know, you, Mr. Senator, you made a promise you would vote for the bill. Now's the chance to do it. So before we sent it to the governor, we had, I can only describe it as Ohio's version of shuttle diplomacy. You know, uh, we went back and forth between the two chambers. When I say back and forth, I mean literally fast walking back and forth between the two chambers well uh, after midnight on two consecutive nights to reach agreement on these things. But once the legislature did its part and they sent it to the governor, then we pivoted. You know, and I, I didn't see any point in trying to secure his commitment prior to having it on his desk. Because then we're speaking of a hypothetical. You know, uh, he, could, he could indicate he might veto it just as a means to keep it off his desk, potentially. So in this case, we were dealing with reality. The bill was sent to him, and he had a choice to make. And, and you know, he put himself in a tough position. You know, prior to the election, 2018, he made multiple promises that he would sign a repeal of duty to retreat. By passing a very clean version of that bill, we had ensured there was nothing else to latch on to. There was literally nothing else he could say, well, gosh, we didn't get that part right. I'm not comfortable with it. What he received from the legislature was a very clean version of that repeal. So that, that made him make the choice between that which he promised us during 2018 and the statements that sort of put himself in a corner with regard to he didn't want to do a bill like this until he had received the passage of other legislation you know, relevant to the shootings in Dayton. So I think our campaign at that point was a pivot. You know, let, let's spend our time reminding the governor, Lieutenant Governor John Houston, and their staffs that they had made us a promise, that we were counting on them to keep their promise. So I think the key to the entire effort to convince the governor to keep his promise is to maintain uh, communication. You know, let's face it, a lot of folks were unhappy with the governor this past year and his reaction to the Dayton shootings. A lot of uh, gun owners felt that he had betrayed us. And so, you know, there, there's some folks who uh, make it their practice simply to throw bombs in these situations. I, I personally don't think that you're going you're gonna to bomb throw somebody into signing your bill, right? So what we did instead was maintain a steady stream of communication. And that communication was not conciliatory. It was just factual. You know, hey, Governor, here's a copy of the questionnaire that you did for us in which you committed to sign the bill. You know, Lieutenant Governor Houston, here's a copy of the questionnaire you did in which you made the same commitment. You know, here's a newspaper article in which you were interviewed and you said you would do it. So for us, it was just a steady stream of reminding him of his promise. Now, some might say, well, gosh, why does he need to be reminded? Well, I mean, let's give him credit for this. The other side, the anti-gun side, was certainly not staying silent while we were waging our campaign. He was being steadily reminded by anti-gun groups, by Mike Bloomberg's minions at the Capitol, that, uh, that he had promised he would do something and that he hadn't done it. Certainly the complicit media was talking about it in many ways, and so I, I think he was under a lot of pressure to deliver for them as well. 
So, you know, ultimately we presented him with a choice that he had to make. And I give him credit. You know, Buckeye Firearms Association has called out the things the governor has done that we disagreed with. We've been honest about it. We've been open about it. Even sometimes when it's caused tough conversations with him and his uh, officials. But in this case, we had a chance to talk him into signing the bill. And ultimately what we were told is, you know, he, he just felt like he had to keep his word. So there's a lot of bad things you can say about politicians, but ending up on a note when the guy says, well, gee, I made a promise. I think I ought to keep it. That's not a bad place to wind up. No, I mean, you know, and the bill got signed and we're going to repeal duty to retreat. And yes. just as a point of reference, there's, there's a 90 day clock that runs after a bill signed and after it's submitted to the secretary of state. So if we're counting the days correctly, this should be April 6th. So when you wake up in the morning on April 6th and you're carrying your gun, you're going to work, whatever it is you're doing, there is no duty to retreat on that day and forever after. That's right. That's right. So for the first time, the, the law in Ohio won't expect you to figure out your legal means of escape before you can protect right. a loved one. And, and another podcast, we're going to talk to Sean Maloney. Uh, who's um, an attorney, firearms expert, trainer, and, and was involved in this whole process. We're going to talk to him about you know what all this means for gun owners in Ohio. Ohio has around 4 million gun owners, so this is really a big deal. This is a big change in how you think about self-defense, how the law treats you, and it's a little bit related to Castle Doctrine because previous to this, uh, you didn't have to retreat in your home. You didn't have to retreat in your car. So basically, if you understand that concept, just take this, expand it to everywhere else that you have a right to be, and that's duty to retreat. Some people call it stand your ground. You know, we we were not referring to it in that way because that's that doesn't really appear in the law, and, and it, that tends to be more of a marketing term than anything else. Same thing, though. So that it, it's gone. No duty to retreat beginning on April 6th. So, um, Rob, what do you think? Uh, this, this whole process right down to the last day, pretty exciting. I mean, this was like a, this was like a movie, right? It was like an, an action thriller with all these twists and turns and we get down to the last day. I feel like this was uh, like a 007 movie, you know, where the bomb is ticking down and it gets right to 007. And, you know, every, everything turned out well because we didn't give up. Right. We absolutely didn't give up, and we fought until uh, literally hours before that 10-day window expired. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the lesson of the duty to retreat repeal in Ohio is, you know, it's, it's vitally important that you communicate honestly with legislators. You tell them what you need. You tell them what you want. You tell them when you think they're wrong, but you also do your best to maintain communication because you can't communicate with somebody who won't open the door for even a conversation. And so, you know, we put those relationships, years of relationships that have been cultivated by Buckeye Firearms Association, those were put to work all within, you know, just a matter of days in November uh, of this year. I mean, basically, it was like running the two-minute offense to get this thing done. And in terms of the, you know, the no duty to retreat, you know, the media has tried to frame this in all these different issues that completely ignore the importance of the law. The, the, the law itself has nothing to do with, with racial politics. The law is about whether I have an obligation to check some strange box 
Did I try to hide? Did I try to run before I'm allowed to defend myself or a loved one? It's, it's, it's nonsense. And I'll tell you something. I, everybody I've, I've encountered since this bill passed and it got all the media coverage after the governor signed it, when they ask me what the bill does and I explain it in that term, even people who I consider to be fairly comfortable with increased gun restrictions walked away saying, well, gosh, that just makes sense. And that's just it, isn't it? The law previously didn't make any sense at all. Well, it, it put the law on the side of the attacker, right? So it was the victim who was being further victimized by the law. Yeah. I basically said, you know, when you're facing a life or death situation, you've got to worry about the safety of the guy attacking you and trying to kill you. Yes. Yes. Right. And that, that just makes no sense. Makes sense. And it, it's not like you get a uh, get out of jail free card. It's not like, you know, this was presented by all the Bloomberg folks as, well, now you're going to get into an argument over a parking space. Just pull out your gun, shoot the guy and tell him, well, I was in fear for my life. And then that's it. They take him away in a rubber bag and you're done. <laughs> well, that's ridiculous. That's, yeah. That is not what's going to happen. No. This just cleared up the law on an element that really didn't need to be there and which was confusing and it was completely unfair. So just like every other law that we've passed, you know, going back 15, 20 years, the same prediction all the time. It's blood in the streets, okay corral, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's going to be warfare on the highways and, and that it's just not going to happen. It's never happened. It's not going to happen with this. So... Um, you know, it, it gets all political, but in the end, this was a this was a very small change that has a huge impact yes. on the four million gun owners in Ohio. Yes, uh, I mean, I uh, other than one other item, you know, which we all would agree would be constitutional carry. I, I can't think of a bigger accomplishment that we could have gotten in the 2020 uh, legislative session. I'm really glad we got it done, and the fact that it got exciting and made us work late at night was. You know, fun in some respects, but getting it done was key, and now we can move on to other priorities. Well, and that's the thing. From my perspective, this this clears the decks, right? So now we don't have to fight for that same ground again. Now we can come back, and we can start talking about constitutional carry and really and really focus on that yes. and not be distracted by something, well, we didn't pass it last time, let's try it again. And then who knows what's going to happen because we have a two-year session, and as we saw well, not just last year, but every session. Things happen that you don't expect was going to happen. 2020, like, oh my goodness, what what else could have happened yes. other than the comet hitting? So we have no idea what's, what's coming up this year. No. It's probably going to continue to be crazy for a while. But duty to retreat, Senate Bill 175, got passed, got done. It's over. That's right. So that, that is a great victory. Wasn't the only thing that we got done. Got a nice bill done, and and we'll talk about this in another podcast, Rob. With with all the sheriff's offices closing down, we got actually a couple bills passed yeah. to extend the the deadlines till June thirtieth. But we'll we'll save that for later. Um, anything else well, on duty to retreat? You know, uh, other than just to say, you know, Senate Bill one seventy five wasn't even the duty to retreat bill. You know, and so now no one's talking about what it actually did. But that's another example of a, a you know positive advancement for gun rights and and also protecting businesses where people carry firearms. And I think you know that Senate Bill one seventy five is a bill we should talk about other than duty to retreat in the future. That was the vehicle for this thing, but it also was something we got done. So I would say this, you know, duty to retreat, that was the big get for two thousand twenty. But we got 
three or four or five other items along with it that are also important and, and worthwhile advancements on behalf of gun rights. Good. Well, Rob, thanks for being on the show, and uh, we'll have you back talk about some other stuff. That sounds great, Dean. Thanks a lot. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to JoinBFA.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's JoinBFA.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.